0: You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. So good to see everybody. Would you find a seat? It looks like there's, because of the weather, there's a few less people. So if you want, you can move up to the front. That's where all the cool people sit. And meet somebody at your table. So meet them. If you already know everybody at your table, meet somebody outside of your table. Ready, get to go. Meet and greet. And then after you're done meeting and greeting, you can find your seats. Uh, I want to introduce our speaker for today, who uh, many of you know, he's spoken here before at the Mill Sunday School. Adam Molesky has been working with the Mill for years and years and years, and just like was it last month, he officially became a New Life Church pastor, like got licensed. So uh, that's pretty sweet. So, Adam, come on up here. Adam's going to teach us today. We are in a church history series, and he'll tell you more about that. So, everybody, Adam Molesky.
1: Hey, guys. Uh, so, like Joe said, um, hopefully, is that feeding back a little bit? Anyway, uh, like Joe said, I've been working here at the mill. Middle- I moved to Colorado Springs in 2000, uh, 2007. I've been here for six and a half years now. It's been awesome. Um, yeah, I'm excited. Like Joe said, we're doing church history. So if you've been around for the last few months, you know that we've been doing church history since August or September. And right now we're talking, basically, we've been brought into this age of the church where it's just been legalized. It's just been accepted by the state. Um, before that, it was, it was, illegal to be a Christian. Christians were persecuted. They were arrested, put in the Coliseum. Before we start, Joe, did you mention visitors? Alright, so if you're a visitor here, if this is your first time to Sunday School, really glad you're here. If you don't know, the Mill is uh, a part of, the Mill Sunday School is a part of the Mill which meets on Friday nights. Uh, and if you guys haven't been to the Mill, we'd love to invite you. It's a really awesome service where we, Basically, just get together and worship, and read the Word, and uh, hear from our pastor Daniel Grothy. Uh, so yeah, that's the that's the Mill Sunday School. If you are new, there's a visitor card on your table that you can fill out and bring out to the back, and we'll give you a gift to say thanks for coming. Uh, and I want to start tonight or this morning by reading out of John chapter one. Joe always does something really cool. He never or usually doesn't put the scripture on the screen, and it encourages you to bring your Bible or use one of the ones on the table. Um, So if you don't have a Bible and you want to take one of those ones on the table, feel free, if you've got your Bible, open it to John 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. It's a little bit of a big passage here. But it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who is sent from God. His name was John, referring to John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Verse 10. He was in the world, Though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will but born of God. And here's the the big verse for today. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. For those of you, I mean, we just went through Christmas. For those of you who don't know, that's talking about Jesus, the Son of God, um, who became incarnate and uh, is the Son of God, but is also a man. Remember that that scripture verse, because there's a lot of things in there that we're going to refer back to later on today in, the, in that little 14 section 14-verse section of Scripture. Uh, Like I said, right now we're doing church history, and this month we're talking about the spread of the Imperial Church. So this January, I mean, sorry, uh, January. For those of you who got that joke, there's not a a lot of you here, but it's all good. So we're talking about the spread of the Imperial Church. So like I said, the church has just been legalized. The Edict of Milan, 317 A.D., basically puts, uh, or sorry, 313 A.D., makes Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. So Christians who before are just persecuted, they're basically running, they're hiding, uh, they're, they're strong in their faith, but they're also being persecuted for their faith. They the imperial churches this time, when the church is opened out to the public, the, the state accepts it, the state adopts it, and it does some really great things for the church and it does some really not so great things for the church. In the Church History series, we're using this book, it's called Church History in Plain Language, uh, and Joe asked me to tell you that if you are reading along with us, the next homework assignment that you have, if you are just following along, or if you have a competition with a friend to read the most, it's uh, chapter 11 will be, next week, Joe will kind of jump into that, but this week we're going to talk about these controversies, controversies that happened in the early church. Uh, in the early church, there's lots of, foundational things are being figured out. There's a lot of, in a, in a sense, the church is getting its feet under it. So so it's almost like a, if you've seen pictures or video of like a small cat being born, it takes a little bit for that cat to be able to walk normally. You, you can see it's kind of figuring out how to get its feet under it, to take steps. And that's, in a sense, how this early church looks. It's, it's doing things, it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's growing. It's learning. But in a lot of ways, it's getting its feet under it. And there's a lot of these new teachers who are new to the church or new to the, this Christian faith as Jesus set it up. Maybe they're, they're former Jewish rabbis. They know the law. They know the Torah. But it's just a growing process. And so, like any human organization, any group of humans, there's the opportunity for trouble to arise as people... Just fall short. They they don't really. Maybe there were some cases in this early church where there are men who were spreading false teachings, and and I think that was purposeful. They were trying to be heretics, and in a sense, they were trying to talk about they were trying to spread lies about Christianity. But then there's also the other side of it, where there are these men, these preachers who, uh, they, or these teachers who just didn't understand the fullness of the word of God. They didn't. They're still learning it all. So as they're teaching and learning. There's controversies that come up, and one of the main controversies, one of the main doctrines that in the early church is talked about is the Trinity. Uh, for those of you who have ever seen this symbol right here, that's that's a symbol for the Trinity. Uh, it wasn't—I don't think it was around back then. It was kind of a later thing, but I just put that up to kind of bring the Trinity into our into our view here because the the one distinctive thing about Christianity from Paganism, Gnosticism, uh, all these other worldly religions was the fact that we believe in this God who has a triune nature, and it was pretty confusing for people. Uh, it was almost like the when when the, what is it called? The Rubik's Cube was invented. Everyone was really excited about it because everyone was trying to figure out if they could they could solve the Rubik's Cube. And in a sense, the Rubik's Cube of the early Church was the doctrine of the Trinity. So, it was very widely discussed. There was one bishop, um, Constantinople, which is the main city, one of the main cities in the, the eastern part of the Roman Empire, basically is Istanbul Turkey today. Uh, this bishop talks about Constantinople, and he says, if in the city you ask anyone for change, he will discuss with you whether God the son is begotten or unbegotten. If you ask about the quality of bread, you'll receive the answer that God the Father is greater, God the Son is less. If you suggest that a bath is desirable, you'll be told that you'll be told that there was nothing before God the Son was created. So this bishop is basically saying that in, in all these major cities, when you walk around, you ask for some bath water, you, the response you get is they ignore your question and they're talking about the Trinity. He's pointing out that the Trinity is this huge topic. Uh, It's it's basically taking up a lot of the space in in theological discussions. It's taking up a lot of the space in um, in like church decision making. The the church leaders are all arguing over what does it mean. They're all trying to figure out how do we believe in a God who's one but also three. And like I said, it's like this Rubik's cube. People didn't really understand it, but they're trying to because they recognize that it's a big facet of our faith. Um, And this, I want to point out. So a few years earlier, these discussions happened underground. So there's these churches that are happening. They're being persecuted, so they're not really out in the public square a lot. They're hiding, in a sense. Um, And so these discussions are really hard to solve. Like, imagine if I gave you guys a problem right now, and I told you, you guys need to solve this problem. Like, even if I handed you a Rubik's Cube to each table, and I said, you all need to solve the Rubik's Cube, but you can't let anyone know that you're working on it it'd be pretty tricky to do because you're trying to do it under the table or covering it up. So so that's the problem with persecution is they're trying to figure out what do these doctrines mean, what does the Trinity mean, but they're not able to have these open discussions in the public square, the public arena. Um, and then on the other side of it, when the Edict of is passed and the church is accepted and adopted by the state, you have the problem of these church leaders now rather than them kind of working together on the underground they're out in the public square they're able to debate they're able to fight it out in a sense and the problem that arises is that now when they have these these disagreements they're looking up to the emperor they're looking up to the state to say come and solve our disagreements come and solve our issues and in a sense that's a good thing because it creates an order like I'll show you in a little bit and it creates good ways to bringing people together to collaborate to find the solution to these problems, but you can get, almost kind of picture it like these these church leaders are children and they're going to their parents saying, he hit me, she bit me, we need you to, to figure it out, we need you to be the mediator here. And so, in a sense, this time is like a, a grass is always greener, you've heard the, the, the term, the grass is always greener on the other side. And you don't know what it's like until you get to the other side, and maybe you get to the other side and you look back and say, "The grass is greener where we were before." And so, in, this, in that way, we look at this controversy that happened over the trying nature of God. There's these two guys uh, on the the left here. This is a picture that they took uh, together at a party one time. On the left, uh, it's the bishop of Alexandria. His name is Alexander. So Alexander is the bishop, he is in charge of the Sea of Ale- Alexandria, which is, um, which is I think in Egypt, north, like the northern part of, I think it's in the northern part of Egypt, sorry what I'm trying to say. And on the right is his student, so one of the guys that he's basically tasked with teaching, and this guy's name is Arius, it's A-R-I-U-S. So Alexander is teaching the doctrine of the Trinity, and he's talking they say that one of the mainest main verses is the one that we just read, John one fourteen. And I'll read it again to kinda of bring it up. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Alexander, the bishop, is talking about the Trinity, and Arius pushes back on him. So Alexander is of the belief that the trying nature of God Means that the Son of God, who became incarnate, is fully God, and He is He is God, and there's it's basically like a, I'll show you in a second. He's the same substance, and Arius pushes back and says, "Not so fast." Arius believes that while Christ has a divine nature to Him, it's a little bit different than than God's nature. So, if you look at it, you, you might say. Christ is the very first created thing that God, before He even created time, before He created the world, before He created anything, He created His Son. And Arius would say, while He is divine, He's the first created thing, but nonetheless He's created. So He's He's almost like if you have God the Father, God the Son is below. And Alexander and Arius basically get into this fight, Uh, and it's kind of a pretty pretty bad fight. They they go to the state. Um, Arius even goes to another kind of teacher named Eusebius. And Eusebius takes Arius aside enough to, enough to say that there's these two sides of the, this debate that are formed. And it gets pretty serious. And so Constantine, who's the emperor at the time, steps into the controversy. And Constantine, like if you remember a few weeks ago, I talked about Constantine's conversion. He got converted. Uh, the story is that he got converted before this big battle where he actually took over uh, that's where he gained his control of the roman empire and right before the night before he sees this vision he becomes a christian and and i explained in that that talk a few weeks ago that a lot of people believe that constantine might have done this more as a political move than anything else that he as an emperor as a political man saw that there was there was vision and that Christianity was this new thing that might be able to unify everyone and bring them together. So, in the same way, people look at this debate and Constantine stepping into the Arian controversy, uh, which is kind of what this gets called. And Constantine steps in, and people are a little bit suspicious uh, people who look back, historians, in saying that maybe Constantine stepped in because. If he's looking at the Christian church as being the unifying thing in his, em- his empire, and if he looks into the Christian church and there's all these divisions and people are fighting, then the weakened church can't strengthen the weakened empire. So, so people say that perhaps Constantine steps in and brings about these uh, resolutions to the problem because he wants the church to be strong so that his empire can be strong. Regardless of what you believe, Constantine steps in, so you might say that it's divine that God is using Constantine, even though he's still at this point in his life thinking more on the political side of things than the the faith side of things. But God, but I think that this is a big deal, and I think that God used Constantine in this situation to bring truth um, into the into the the debate. But here's the, where the debate is over. These two words right here, homoious and homoious, they're kind of tricky to say. But the, the one on the top, homo eusis, uh, is a word that means of the same substance. So it's basically like you're saying these these two things have the same DNA, they have the same substance, it's, it's exactly the same, they're identical. The second word, homo eusis, uh, means that these two things are of a similar substance. So they're very close, but they're not quite the same. So... If you, if you remember the two guys, Bishop Alexander of Alexandria, he would take the top word. That's his, that's his um, word. Homo Lucius, saying that God and the Son are the same substance, and therefore they are both equal in their godness. And Arius takes the second word. Like like I said, Constantine. This is a picture. I put this picture up. It's you might not be able to see it, but it's a coin of Constantine's empire. He he steps into the debate when when it gets real heated, and basically he does something pretty revolutionary for the early church. Like I said, the early church before, when they had issues, they would have to walk. They would have to kind of go underground and try to resolve them as they're hiding, as they're avoiding persecution. But for the first time, maybe, or one of the first times in history. Constantine steps in and gets everyone together to go to this little city called Nicaea. And for the first time, these bishops, he, he calls basically all the bishops together, there's 300 or so of all the different churches around the empire, and he brings them all to Nicaea. And he invites them all and pays for their travel, and they're they're protected when they travel. So in the past, when they're walking from town to town on the road, they're hiding, They're they're trying to disguise themselves, they're not walking around telling people that they're going on a trip to discuss something about Christianity because they'll get put in jail. For the first time, they're in maybe in carriages and maybe horse-drawn, and they're probably pretty elaborate, and they go into this city of Nicaea. Nicaea is, it's kind of hard to see on this map, but on the very top left, there's a green dot that says Constantinople, and then the closest blue dot to Constantinople is Nicaea. So all these bishops come to Nicaea and they get together to discuss the Arian controversy. So they're talking about is God the Father and God the Son the same substance or is it the similar substance? Uh, And so basically, what happens here? They say that the the controversy got settled pretty quick. There was enough people in the room to sway the opinion to say that God the Father and God the Son are the same substance, using the word homoousios. not to be confused with homo eiusis. And this controversy is settled pretty quickly. They say that all but two bishops and Arius, so uh, Arius is there, all the bishops, the bishops bring other aides with them, but the, the bishops are kind of voting. And all but two of them sign this agreement to say God is the same substance. Arius doesn't sign it, and two other bishops don't sign it, and they're both exiled. So Constantine basically says, Do you guys so they do, um, and and this isn't necessarily the end of the controversy; it'll continue. Uh, but out of this council of Nicaea comes what we have, and what we see pretty frequently is called the Nicene Creed. And it's helpful to recognize when we look at the Nicene Creed. And I'll, if you, ha- if you're unfamiliar with it, we'll read through it together in a little bit. But it's helpful to recognize the Nicene Creed. Uh, in this light, with the perspective of this controversy and the perspective of the council that decided and, and basically wrote out the Nicene Creed using other, other documents. But if you look at the Nicene Creed as a bunch of theologians coming together and just having a great time and writing out all the things that they agree upon, you'll look at the Nicene Creed as in a different light than if you look at it as coming out of controversy. And to kind of paint a picture, if the Nicene Creed, Creed was written today, like in the last two weeks, I want you to like imagine there might be a little bit of a clause in the Nicene Creed that talks about Duck Dynasty and, and w- what Phil Robertson could or couldn't say on TV because that's what's happening in our time. That's what, you know, like the, one of the talked about issues is Duck Dynasty, and what Phil Robertson said. So the Nicene Creed is written out of; or it's a reactionary response to this controversy, controversy that's happening in the world in the in the, the Christian Church. Um, and so the Nicene Creed, they get together, they write it out, basically saying, "Here's what Ari- here's what this controversy was about. Here's what Arius is saying. Here's what Alexander is saying. And in response to that, we're going to write out this document. We're going to write about write out this statement of faith for our for the church, and we're going to basically Staple in, uh, put in cement and concrete, the beliefs that we have regarding the triune nature of God. So I don't want you to look at it as just people, like I said, having a great time and a time of peace, just having a theological uh, council where they are just coming up with new documents and new creeds. They're they're responding to a controversy. Right now, what I want to do is I'm going to read the 19th you um, so that you know what it is. And you'll see in it that there are certain certain phrases, uh, especially when it talks about the Son. There are phrases like "True God from True God," "Light from Light," "Begotten, not made." And if you think about it, when when I, when I read it, remember that it's they're they're responding to Arius. They're they're basically, in a sense, telling Arius through this creed, "You're wrong." So here we go. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And I want that those three words, and the Son, remember those for a few minutes later. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He is spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Uh, a couple things you, you heard me say. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. That word Catholic, what we would say today is global and universal. It wasn't saying the Roman Catholic Church. In a sense, it's basically saying all of the churches, all, all the people who call themselves Christ followers. We believe in a church that's a, a, a family of faith. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to point out, like I said, to remember the words and the Son. that phrase right there, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. And the sun, so the, what we call that is the okay, and, and that that three word term and the sun was added to the nineteen creed at a later time. And basically, I think, in my opinion, it's a little bit of is splitting hairs. Uh, when they wrote out the Nicene creed, they're already splitting hairs in a sense and saying, "Here's what we believe." They're, mar- they're marking a line in the sand, but this "and the sun" thing, they didn't have it in the in at first. And later on, people said, well, we should add that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and it caused a pretty big debate that happens later, and I'm sure Joe will kind of address that when we get to that part of church history. Um, and I just wanted to point that out, that when you look at the Nicene Creed, um, and you read, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, just know that and the Son comes later, and uh, it's, I think it's a great addition, but I wasn't there originally. So one person that I want to talk about in addition to Arius and Alexander is this guy named Athanasius. And the, the is a little bit dark, so it's a little bit hard to see. Um, Athanasius is another student of Alexander. So Arius is a student and Athanasius is a student. And it's almost um, the good guy and the bad guy in the story because Arius... Uh, Arius goes, he goes into exile after the Council of Nicaea. once he's exiled, and he, he basically continues this fight. He continues to argue his point. And Athanasius, who at the time of the Nicene Council, he's an aide to Alexander. He, he's at the Council. He's pretty young. He's probably around 30 years old. But he spent a lot of his time studying in his early years, About the triune nature. So they say that Athanasius potentially could have had a pretty big influence in the wording of the Nicene Creed and uh, the adoption of the Nicene Creed and the things that are stated in it the true God from true God, uh, light from light, eternally begotten of the Father. So Athanasius is this guy who takes Alexander's side and he really drives it home. And about three years later, Athanasius becomes the bishop of Alexandria, so he takes over for Alexander, and for 50 years he's he's the bishop of Alexander, and it's not a peaceful thing for him because in that time, when a new emperor would come in to the to the empire, they might have uh, uh, like Arius or his people, his his cronies, might have an opportunity to get an ear. Get, get a chance to talk to the em, emperor, and they might say, Hey, we've got this controversy going, you should be on our side. And that happened a few times, and the emperors might go one way or the other. And so, in Athanasius' 50 year bishop, the, as the bishop of the See of Alexandria, he's exiled five times. So, as this guy who's in charge of the church, he's kicked out, invited back, kicked out, invited back, kicked out, invited back at least five times that we know of. So it's not a very peaceful thing. But the cool part of this story is that Athanasius, even in all these exiles, he he basically says to the church, to the empire, it doesn't matter if I'm the only person out here fighting this fight. I believe so firmly that God, and God the Father and God the Son are the same substance that I'll do it alone if I have to. If nobody else is going to be here fighting with me, that's fine. I believe it so strongly. And so, so like I said, those two words that we remember—they're on your notes if you got them when you came in. Homoousios and homoousius they are kind of significant words in our faith. They—they they say something about what we believe about the Trinity. And when I was learning this, I found it a little bit confusing, a little bit hard to remember, because really, what they're arguing over is one iota, uh, and for our language, it's the I—that's right in the center of the word—and. This is going to get a little bit cheesy, and I don't know if you'll be able to see the picture very well. But the way that I always remember who is on which side in this argument is, that I remember that Athanasius fought, and he fought by himself, and he is the theologian who has one eye rather than two eyes, because in Homoousius there's two eyes, Homoousius there's one eye. So remember, Athanasius, the one-eyed theologian. That's how I always picture it. Um, but, th- but. Not to, not to be confused with an actual story, and I wanted to tell this little story because uh, going back to the Nicene Creed, we just looked at the 50 years or so after, but the Nicene Creed, like I said, was a pretty big deal. For the first time, this the state has called a council for our faith to be discussed in the public arena, and after the Nicene Creed is finished, or the council of Nicaea has finished, and they've decided on the Nicene Creed. the emperor feels like he just won this huge battle and, and unifying the, the empire. So he throws a party. And one of the significant moments in this party is kind of like the after party of the council with a bunch of bishops, who was probably a rager. Um, but these bishops are all having this little party. And at one point in the party, the, the emperor, Constantine, walked up to one of the bishops who several years earlier had lost his eye to persecution. They don't, they, I don't really know exactly what it was, if it was he was in the Colosseum or someone just attacked him, but he doesn't have an eye. So not to be confused with Athanasius, which is my little cheesy analogy there, but this bishop actually doesn't have an eye. He has one eye and the, the emperor walks up to this guy and gives him a kiss on the cheek, on the eyeless cheek. And this is a pretty significant thing too. It's a great picture of, of the empire, almost in a sense, apologizing for the persecution that had happened, and that's a pretty cool moment, I think, for the church, where the church, uh, the church is accepted again. And this bishop, I can't imagine what that moment would have been like for the guy who is basically the guy who held the position that was in charge of all the persecution that he has experienced for most of his life, uh, comes up to him and gives him a kiss on the injured eye, if that makes sense. So. We we've got the Nicene Creed now, and we look back on it, and if you guys didn't know, if you've never been to New Life Church, New Life uh, has this meeting that we call New Life Next, and we talk about what New Life believes. And if you've never been, I encourage you to go, because it really is a cool thing. If you've been coming to New Life for a year, or a week, or 10 years, or 18 years, and you haven't been to New Life Next, you really should check it out. because. Pastor Brady shares the vision of the church, and he shares the beliefs of the church. And one of the things that he talks about is how, a few years ago, New Life Church, we were looking at our statement of faith, and we had written out from the past we had this written out thing that said what we believe, and we had kind of not made it up in the sense that we like made up a bunch of baloney, but we we wrote out this thing that said what we believe. And a few years ago, we were looking at that, and we some of the Pastors, the executive pastors made the decision to adopt the Nicene Creed as our statement of faith. So, if you go to New Life Next on a Wednesday night, you'll hear Pastor Brady read the Nicene Creed, and he actually has everyone read it together. And it, I want to bring up a question because the Nicene Creed, again, like I said, it was written out of a controversy. It was written as a response to that controversy, um, and it was written in a sense to basically combat Arius's theology. But I think it's done a really good job, and what, we, what we're left with in the Nicene Creed is this amazing picture of what we believe as Christians and what we don't believe as Christians. So the question that I'm going to have you guys discuss at the tables is, is Nicene Creed sufficient enough for the statement of faith in a local church? And what I mean by that is, as we look at this creed, we, we recognize that it's a response to controversy, but does it do an adequate job of kind of covering all the bases that we might believe? And so I want you guys to discuss at your tables. If you're at a table by yourself, jump in with someone else and join a group. Um, but discuss, are there issues that you think are, like Joe talks about sometimes, open-handed and closed-handed issues, things that we say, yeah, we don't really know what that says, and these things we do know. and We'll hold firmly to them. But does the nice thing adequately cover those things, or are there things that are missing out? If we look at the belief of a Christian, if we look at the beliefs that a church might hold to. So take a few minutes and talk about, I'll have a microphone to ask the questions and say if you do think there are things that we should maybe add to a statement of faith or things that might need to be covered. So take a, take a few minutes at your table and
2: talk about this question here. Go. All right, here we go. So... <laughs> We might have had some time
1: to discuss. We might have different uh, opinions, but I'd like to hear some of them. So, Aaron is going to start us off. Make sure this mic here is on. Sounds good. All right, Aaron Spurgeon.
2: Well, being raised in a Lutheran church, that was the nice and creed is one thing that we stated every single Sunday before the end of the service. And the one thing that I found that's really missing is the discussion of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not in there. Um, so even in Scripture, it talks about Satan and the angels know who God is. They know who Jesus Christ is, and the Spirit. But that is the end of going to heaven. So the personal relationship is kind of a core behind in our faith.
1: All right, you know, Aaron Higgins. Yeah, so the, it doesn't it doesn't talk about the intimacy of the relationship that we would say.
3: Well, so I the Cornerstone of faith. Um, pick any mainstream denomination and they'll agree with the Nice and Creed. But if you go into a Baptist church, they'll agree with the Creed and then say, But we believe this. If you go into a Presbyterian church, they'll say, We agree with the Nice and Creed, but we also believe this. So, you know, you get all these nice branches with Christianity. But it all comes down to the Nicene Creed. It's, it's the core foundational thing. Is it sufficient alone in and of itself? Yes and no. It's not exhaustive enough to, to cover things like, you know, personal relationship with Christ or what we call Calvinism, Arminianism, Ramonism, or, you know, some of these other isms that exist. The Nicene Creed doesn't cover those, but it also is in new conflict. So, you can use this as, as a boiled down version of, of Christianity, what the core values of the faith are. If you think of something or read something and it's in conflict with the Nicene Creed, suspect it. If you go into a church and they say, you know what, we don't believe in the Creed, suspect it. Use, use the Creed as a litmus test. It, it's not the end all be all by any means, but use it as a litmus test to determine is this does this align with what the Church really believes. Yeah. Good. Anyone else?
2: Um, in summation, you no, know, our people decided that we think it is sufficient. Um, in my mind, it's like a uh, character versus personality. This covers like all the character of what we need to believe, but the personality is for each, I would say, like the different denominations of church to decide. So this covers the character, like what you need to have the negotiable. System.
1: Good. Anyone else have anything?
2: Anyone else? All right. Oh, here we go. One more. Finish. Um, I guess what we kind of decided is that we along the same line, but one thing that it should have in it is um, the scripture because it doesn't really talk about that and it doesn't talk about um, like your connection. And like the you know living breathing word of God in your life, and I think it I mean, like you said it does kind of touch the subject, but as a you kind know, of a statement of the of the church, yeah. I think we do need to work, work it a little differently in the it. Yeah. All right, yeah. So
1: I think I think I would agree in the sense that I, th- I think the church, sorry, the Nicene Creed does address like you said the character addresses the core values. Um, but there are a few things where, if you're, and, and the the debate might be that you could teach these other things, things about like scripture, in another avenue. Um, but but I think that the Nicene Creed, like I said, one of the things I was kind of not not shocked to learn, but when I, as I was studying and thinking about it, I was thinking, man, it, I've always looked at the Nicene Creed as this just this awesome statement, and it really is a response to a controversy. It's like a a judge is ruling in a sense. So looking at that light, like, I, I think there are things that can be added to it, and things that—not sorry—not added to the creed. Because when they wrote the creed, they were just responding. But added to what we believe, and um, kind of more, uh, more pointing out more lines in the sand, if you will. But I think one of the coolest things about the creed, and why I really do like that New Life Church uses it as a statement of faith. Um, it's because, like Aaron said, it is this unifying thing. You'll notice that in the modern writing of the Creed, there are some sources that say that they wrote it out with like personal pronouns, I believe, and God's Father. But when we write it, and anywhere you see it today, it's, it's all in this language, language of we believe. We believe in God the Father. We believe in God the Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And it's this unifying thing. Like Aaron said, if you look at any stream of... Christianity, any church, pretty much any church that you go to will look at the Nicene Creed and say, yeah, we believe in that. We we think that that's accurate. We think that that's true. So when we say the Nicene Creed, like Aaron said, there's denominations where you will say it every week to the point where you have it, you'll have it memorized. And New Life Church downtown says it pretty frequently. I'm sure that they all have it memorized. I don't think like they say it every week, but... Um, It is this really awesome statement that says we believe in something. We all come together and we believe. Christians from all over the world, from all times, have said the Nicene Creed since the Nicene Creed was adopted. And I think it's a great way of us looking at the family of faith and saying we're all part of something here. I think that's really cool. So, as a closer to Sunday school, what I'm going to do, I've got this set to go. And the way I could set it up so that everyone could read it, hopefully. Uh, is that it rolled, so we'll have to kind of keep it at a pretty good pace. It's, it's not going to be anything crazy, but if you see it getting too high, we'll speed it up. I'll kind of control, but we're going to stand up, and we're all going to say the Nicene Creed. And I don't want to force this on you as, a, as saying you guys have to believe this. So if there's something in there here that you're not comfortable with, or you, you might say, I don't know if I believe that or I don't understand it. You don't have to say it, but we're going to say the Nicene Creed together today. And I want you guys to think about the fact that we are saying this alongside believers from all over the world and from all time since the Nicene Creed was written and adopted and signed and everything. And it really is a great unifying part of being part of the family of God. So here we go. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, Light from Light, true God and true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. All right, well, let me pray for you guys. Lord, we thank you so much for the way that you've directed and and caused history to take a path that's led to truth being revealed. Lord, we. We look back at this historical time of controversy and resolving controversy, and we see your providence in it, and we see you, your hands guiding us and leading us to truth, Lord. And we're so thankful that we um, we have a way of understanding and a way of stating our beliefs alongside believers, Lord. And I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us, Lord, Lord through your word, that we would be students for the word, that we would be students of you, God. And and we do say that while we can't totally understand all of you, God, we we do love learning about you. We love understanding you to the extent that we can. We're so grateful for this time and this place to learn about you and to, to know more about you and your nature and your heart. And we love you. Amen. All right. Well, we'll be back here again next week. Joe will continue talking about the spread of the Imperial Church. Everyone have a great Sunday. See you soon.
0: Thank you for listening to the Mill Sunday School podcast. You can find more information at
1: www.themillonline.org.